Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Oh, good afternoon, everyone. This is Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the uh, Merciful Servants of God uh, Biblical Instructional Program. Today is May 1st, 2010. I have a new start time, 2.30 Eastern Standard Time, so please make note of that. I have someone that wants to talk here. It looks like uh, caller 210-396-9347. Uh, you're on the air. How may I help you? Oh, no, I was just listening. I'm sorry. Oh, you're just listening. Okay, let me just uh, take you off the air. <laughs> and if um, you want to say anything during the show, let me know. Okay. All right. Um, I have been talking about, over these past programs, the forgotten, especially among Christianity, the forgotten uh, holy days, uh, I guess, all the religions as well, uh, Muslims, and I'm sure they don't celebrate these days either, and uh, Buddha, uh, people that think that Buddha is their God and so forth or whatever, uh, they don't celebrate these days either. The Jews do it, but not with the focus on the Messiah, who we understand as, as those who believe that Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah, is the Messiah. We understand that he's the Christ, and Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And as I've been trying to explain, all these holy days are having their ultimate fulfillment in Christ or the Messiah. And this is the sequence, and I explained this last week. I'll do it again as we are approaching the end of this um, series of Bible studies. Although this isn't the end, we're going to have another Bible study on the Feast of Tabernacles and then the, the last great day or the eighth day. All right, so this is the sequence, though. The Passover represents the Messiah's death and mankind's deliverance through him. The door of immortality is open again to all of mankind, and as I've explained before, and, and what Romans chapter 5 reveals, let's go there. Romans chapter 5 real quick here. Romans chapter 5. You know, death is not normal as far as God is concerned, ladies and gentlemen. We should be looking forward to immortality and eternal life but unfortunately because of what happened in the garden of eden that's not the case right now something has to happen for us to be able to obtain immortality again and christ or the messiah has a lot to do with that uh romans chapter 5 and in verse 12 it says wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay, so that's the reason why we have death. Uh, because of sin, we all die. And what is death? And I'm going to, in the future, have a detailed and specific Bible study on death, what happens after death and everything. Uh, I've been studying for, I would say, years now, trying to get, gather up all the information so that I can give a clear and concise and reputable and truthful Bible study on death, what happens after death, and etc. So that's something that I'm planning to do in the future. So I'll let you know when I have that Bible study available. But anyway, so we understand that because of mankind's sin, which happened in the Garden of Eden, that unfortunately we die. And from what I understand what death is, it's the separation of the spirit or the soul or your life from your body. I've been to many funerals, and perhaps you have too, and when you look at the body, 
it doesn't look like it has life, does it? Well, that spirit or soul uh, is, is separated. So death is the separation of the spirit from the body. And then when you get resurrected, that spirit will be put back into that body. And when you're resurrected, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll get a spiritual body. And that's something, again, that I'm going to cover in further detail in a, in a future Bible study. But anyway, the Passover represents that, 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 that the Messiah's death and, and mankind's deliverance through him. The door of immortality is open again to all of mankind because someone pure and perfect had to be sacrificed, which I'm going to explain today. This is what the Day of Atonement really represents. And this is the, I believe, the biggest stumbling block for our fellow Jewish brethren. Uh, they don't really understand that Yom Kippur, which is what they call in Hebrew, or the Day of Atonement, really represents the work of the Messiah. Once they understand that, they will accept Yeshua Messiah as the Christ or the Messiah. But because they don't understand that, they don't, and I'm going to explain that in this program. Anyway, Yom Bikurim is the day of the way sheep offering or first fruits, which many understand today as Easter, even though it wasn't called Easter in the beginning, uh, the first fruits. Uh, what this day represents is Yeshua or Jesus. Yeshua is his Hebrew name, the first to rise from the dead. He is the first of the first fruits. So Yom Habikarim, Yom Habikarim in Hebrew, or the day of the wave sheep offering, or first fruits, you can call it three different names, represents the resurrection of Yeshua, which is the first of the first fruits. Shavuot, which many understand today as Pentecost, is what it represents is the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Messiah's followers, so that the Torah, or the law of God, the teachings of God, can be obeyed. This will be fulfilled in a mighty way when the Messiah comes again, as Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32 reveals. All right, now, as I explained in Leviticus chapter 23, if we turn there, we have something interesting occurring here. And I didn't really understand this until recently. Uh, Leviticus chapter 23 after the day of first fruits in Shavuot, we have a gap, and I didn't really explain this thoroughly, and I'm going to do it now. During the the uh, God's festivals, according to the calendar, you have the the spring festivals, and then you have the fall festivals. There is a gap. Why is there a gap between the spring festivals and the fall festivals? Well, for those who that believe in Yeshua. As a Messiah, the answer is pretty simple. The, the spring festivals represent his work at his first coming. The fall festivals represent his work of his second coming. And that would explain to Jews also. Because remember, in Romans chapter 1, let's turn there. Because we should be doing this, but we shouldn't be doing it in a judgmental way. But we should be testifying to the Jews, those who are open-minded, to want to investigate and say, hey, wait a minute, let me look at this Jesus thing. Maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe I've been taught wrong. Uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm trying to find the scripture where it says, there we go. Okay. Romans 1 verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, colon, continue to thought, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So we should be preaching also to the Jews, but you don't do it in a judgmental way. Oh, you're going to go to hell, which is true for anyone, I guess. Uh, if uh, well, I guess I know if if you don't, if you're giving ample opportunity to believe in the Messiah and you you've been given the truth, the true teachings about it, and you still deny it and you, and you don't follow him as he commands you to do. And and John 14 verse 6, he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And he means exactly what he means, that whatever he did, we should do as well. And if we don't do that, then, yeah, we are in danger of uh, eternal um, punishment or being just consumed and burnt up to the point of where you're ashes. But anyway, explaining what I'm trying to explain here, uh, you have the, 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 the spring festivals, and you also have the fall festivals, and there's a gap. You have 
the uh, the beginning of the harvest, and then you have the fulfillment of the harvest. Okay, so there's two different harvests. You have the spring harvest, you have the fall harvest. And then I know there's a scripture in the Bible in the New Testament. He says, hey, look, the harvest. You know, he, he was referring to his work as he's harvesting. He's gathering up uh, the good fruit from the bad. That's what he's doing. And this gap of almost 2,000 years, which pictures the, the gap from between the spring festivals and the fall festivals, represents that gathering of the good fruit from the bad fruit. That's what that's doing. All right. And Yom Teruah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, which I covered last week, is the Messiah's return with the blast of a shofar, or shofar, which means in Hebrew, trumpet. Okay? Now, Yom Kippur, which we're going to cover today, if I can ever get through with this part I'm talking about here, uh, Yom Kippur represents national atonement or covering or taking away of sins to the entire tribes of Israel. And I've explained this many times in the program. I know it may sound weird to you at first, but uh, it is true, and you can prove this for yourself. But the entire tribes of Israel includes the tribes of Judah and Levi, which many people today identify with the Jews. But the Jews were only one tribe of Israel. They weren't all the tribes of Israel. All the tribes of Israel are 12, okay? And as all the tribes recognize the Messiah and repent. Now, who's the rest of the tribes? Well, surprisingly... Most Jews don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Well, that's, well, I guess you can say it's surprising, uh, surprising to, to most people because Yeshua himself is a Jew. But anyway, most Jews don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and Christians, whom the Bible defines as Ephraim and the ten lost tribes of Israel, they're not lost to me because God mercifully revealed them to me. And if you believe what I'm telling you, and if you check into these things by going to www.britam, B-R-I-T, B as in boy, R-I-T-A-M dot org, and find out for yourself who the ten lost tribes of Israel is, then they won't be lost to you either, okay? And Christians are a very major part of Ephraim. So Ephraim and the ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, they believe in a counterfeit Yeshua, or Jesus, that destroyed the Torah and removed it by dying on the cross. Now, both Jews and Christians will realize who the Messiah is one day in the future. And this is what Yom Kippur ultimately pictures, and I'm going to go into further detail about that. Now, when I state counterfeit Yeshua, I know of many Christians, because they were taught these things by their parents and so forth, and there's a scripture in uh, Jeremiah chapter 16 that backs up what I'm getting ready to say here, so you don't think I'm getting this out of my own head. Jeremiah chapter 16, starting in, in verse 19, it states, O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth, and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Okay, so right there, and then also in Revelation 12, verse 9. Let's turn there as well. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. It states this, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, or Satan, which deceives or tricks. That's what that word deceives means in original Greek. The whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels was cast out with him. So it tells you that we all, whether we want to realize it or not, have inherited some lies from our parents. Not that our parents were intentionally lying to us, but they also got information from their parents, whom they thought was all true and all good and so forth, and then their parents, etc. It goes all the way back. We have to understand that we have to, to purge whatever we think is true, and reveal it to be false and get rid of it. And, of course, all the things our parents taught us that was true, we should keep. But once I realized this, that's how I was able to, to understand what the truth is. And, and the truth defined in the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 142, tells you that it's God's teachings. The Torah is, is the truth, okay, and the Bible. And we have to, to go to the Bible to find out what is true, and what isn't true, and what is right, and what is not right. And if we all don't have that attitude, then we won't be close to God like we should be. All right, so the next feast 
in this sequence that reveals the work of the Messiah, Sukkot. Sukkot, which I'm going to talk about next week, or the Feast of Tabernacles, represents all of mankind worshiping the Lord from Jerusalem. That's going to happen in the future, in the near future. The last holy day is called Shemini Azaret, which is the eighth day or the great last day. This pictures the new heaven and a new earth being created. Death is ultimately destroyed, and there will be no more sin. Everybody's going to dance up and down with God the Father and Yeshua Messiah in joy and bliss. And what we're going to do, one of the things I know we're going to do, you see all those dead planets out there? We're going to give life to those planets. We are going to expand the universe as God, as our commander, and Yeshua, as next in command. And we're all going to gather around them as one happy family and just create, perhaps create more human beings, perfect human beings this time, and they won't sin. And it's going to, to, to be a, such a joyful time for all of mankind, spiritual mankind, and, of course, human mankind. And that human mankind will learn how to become a spiritual man. And so that is the, the goal of humankind, is to become just like God, not be a God like God is, but to become part of his family. That's where we got the concept of father from. We call him father. He wants to be the ultimate father for us, and he wants to have children, many children. And Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7 said, his kingdom will always expand, meaning that he will have more children. And we're going to have a, a big role in that. So anyway, that's what... Shemini Aseret represents ultimate perfection. So let's talk about the Day of Atonement because the Day of Atonement has some, it really, really has something to do with us getting to that, uh, a major part of us getting to that Shemini Aseret time where there's a new heaven and a new earth. And a key scripture to understanding what the Day of Atonement represents. Uh, let's, let's go to John 1, verse 29. How much time do I have left here? Uh, 42 minutes. Okay. John 1, verse 29. John 1, verse 29. This really is the summation of the work of the Messiah. John 1, verse 29. It's a very, very powerful scripture. And it's a good scripture to begin this Bible study with. John 1, verse 29 on the Day of Atonement. Or Yom Kippur, as the Jews say. Uh, John 1, verse 29. Now, remember the forerunner to the Messiah who will be coming again in the future. I don't know who he is or, or what is specifically saying there in Malachi toward the end of the chapter. It says that an Elijah will come, but it could be a group of people that have the spirit of Elijah, or it could be one individual leading a group of people. We don't know. But anyway, in John 1, verse 29. It says the next day, John, but this was the first Elijah here, uh, fulfilling that prophecy, Yochanan, uh, or John, the Baptist, the next day, or Yochanan the Immerser, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So this is a very powerful statement. First of all, it, it, it talks about, Yeshua being the Lamb of God. So he was the Passover Lamb, as 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 reveals. He was the Passover Lamb, which takes away the sins of the world. All right? Taking away the sin of the world represents what I'm going to talk about today, the Day of Atonement. All right? Um, as Leviticus chapter 23 reveals. Let's turn there. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And it talks about, in verse 12, you shall offer that day when you wave the wave sheaf, and this is the, the day of first fruits, a he lamb, and that's what Yeshua was based on the testimony of the greatest man who ever lived, according to what Yeshua stated, Yochanan the Immerser, or John the Baptist. Uh, he was a he lamb, a male lamb, without blemish of the first year, and that's what he was. Uh, many people think that Yeshua had a three-and-a-half-year ministry. Well, uh, show that to me, where it says he had a three-and-a-half-year ministry. So uh, that's another Bible study in itself. But Jesus uh, was that lamb, and he was without blemish because he did not sin. 
So he was the one that qualified to be the first of the wave sheep offering. He was the only one that could. And Psalm 14, verse 3 tells you this. Psalm 14, verse 3. It states that they are all, it says right here, uh, verse 1, says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God, they are, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that do of good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that do of good. No, not one. And what he means, he doesn't mean there's any righteous people on earth. There's very few, but there are some. But what he's saying is that it's not within ourselves naturally to want to seek God. We have to be pushed and influenced by his spirit to come to him. Look what happened with Moses. What had to happen with Moses? Well, something had to happen where a burning bush, uh, where the tree was not consumed. That got his attention. That's the way we are. And Moses was one of the greatest prophets of all time, and he had to be drawn to God that way. Some kind of miracle seems to always have to happen to us, or some catastrophe or whatever, for us to be influenced and driven to obey him. It happened to me. You know, I, I didn't naturally seek God. You know, it had to, I had to come to a conclusion one day uh, when I was very young that something was very wrong, and I was driven to that point. And then I sought after God. So we all can probably have our little stories about how we eventually was attracted to God, but we're not within ourselves naturally uh, seeking God. None of us. The only one that was, of course, was the the, the male lamb without blemish, Yeshua, Messiah. Now, Isaiah chapter 53, and this is um, a chapter that many Jews have an issue with and a problem with, and they need to stop having issues and problems with it because it's true. What it's saying, whether it's in Hebrew, Greek, or whatever, you know, it's talking about the Messiah. And even in their ancient writings, uh, which is in the Talmud today, uh, some of them, well, actually even before that, some of them admit that Isaiah 53, yeah, in the Talmud it does, yeah. In the Talmud, one of, one of the, the tractates uh, admits that in Isaiah 53, this is referring to the Messiah. So anyway, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, or his life, an offering or body. An offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So, and that one scripture talks about his sacrifice, him being the Lamb of God, and also the fact that he will live forever. And his seed will live forever as well, if they obey him, of course. Leviticus chapter 17 is one of the most highly disputed scriptures of Jews as well. They, they try to say that this is not talking about uh blood being the atonement, and yet in their ancient writings as well. I didn't have time to, to actually research and, and quote them, but if you do your own research, look at the Talmud, and look at their ancient writings. They do admit that blood is, is the atonement. Okay, so uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 states, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls or your lives. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. And this is a, you know, you can read this in Hebrew. You can read It's a pretty plain statement. And some Jews, ancient Jews, acknowledge that this is true. All right? Now, if we turn to Genesis and remember the first murder that occurred, which Cain was responsible for. And we look at um, Genesis chapter, I think it's Genesis chapter 4, beginning of, uh, yeah, chapter 4. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and her was half sex with her. And she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. In other words, Cain, he gave a stingy offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, and this is important to, to understand here in the light of what this day represents, it says, Why art thou angry, and why is thy countenance or face fallen? And this is in Genesis 4, verse 6. And verse 7, If thou doest well, 
shall you not be accepted. In other words, if you do good, you're going to be accepted. But if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. So God wants us to rule over, conquer, master the tendency to want to sin. We should run away from it. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question is, yes, we are our brother's keepers. But he was being, I don't know, just totally disrespectful to God uh, and, and his uh, question there to him. Anyway, verse 10, and he said, What hast thou done? And this is the scripture I wanted to point out to you. I just wanted you to understand the context. The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So it says, the voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground, which proves that there must be some life force in the blood and also proves that there must be life after death. Okay, so that's something also that I'm going to talk about in the future. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. In the King James, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And that's interesting, it says almost all things. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Okay, so sins can't be taken away without this. And see, Jews understand what Yom Kippur represents. They understand that that means that all sins from all the nation of Israel and really the entire world, because the law is not just for them, which they mistakenly understand it to be that way, but it's for all of mankind, as is easily proven. If you look at the last chapter of Isaiah, it says all of mankind shall keep the Shabbat or Sabbath from one new moon to the next, from new, from, from, from one new moon to one... Well, let me just quote there. Let me quote, go to that scripture here. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter uh, 66. Come here, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66. It says, um, verse 23, or actually in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me. I just got you talking about Shemini Atzeret, which represents the new heaven and the new earth. Okay. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your seed and your name remain. So this is the context. Verse 23, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Shabbat or Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. And verse 24, for those who don't, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of bodies of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die. And that worm is talking about not their, their bodies, but it's talking about the worm that naturally uh, gathers on dead bodies. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence unto all flesh. So it's talking about the bodies, not, not, the, not the life force from the bodies, but their actual bodies uh, will be on display for people who are thinking about sinning. And they could be reminded that that's what's going to happen to them if they don't get their act together. So, And this is going to happen, of course, during the millennium, because after the millennium, when a new heaven and new earth is created, there will not be any more sin or dead bodies all over the place. So that, that's another Bible study. But anyway... And then Leviticus chapter 16. Let's turn there. I'm going to briefly go over this. This is the Yom Kippur service. And this is something that the Jews um, did back then and, and the entire nation of Israel, not, not just uh, the Jews, but the, all the tribes did. Uh, Leviticus chapter um, 23. Oh, 16, right, I'm sorry. Leviticus chapter 16. Okay, verse 1, I'll just highlight certain key scriptures here. It says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place which within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he not die. Let me explain real quickly the configuration of the temple. The temple uh, has two main compartments. It has the, the, the holy place, which is, the area where the priests go to prepare to do their sacrifices. And then you have the Holy of Holies, which is behind a curtain. The Holy of Holies represents the throne room of God on the earth. Okay? 
So that's what we're talking about here, all right? And in that throne room, you have the mercy seat, and you, you have the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is inside um, a compartment. And this is what they were experiencing here, all right? So he states here in verse 2, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the Ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram a burnt offering. He shall put on a holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breached upon his flesh, and so forth. So I just wanted to give you that background there, and then we're going to go. Um, it says right here, and let me uh, skip to a major part here. All right, verse 6. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So first, the high priest had to make an atonement for himself, because none of us are clean enough to be in the presence of God. So that's one of the things that the sacrifices did represent, the fact that the atonement means covering, and we need, we need to have have our sins covered to be in the presence of God. We needed to have our, our, our flesh, our physical existence, to be covered and cleansed to be in his presence. So that's one of the the, um, the purposes of sacrifices, all right? Uh, of course, it also pictures Christ taking away all of those sins, but I'm going to show you and prove to you in the New Testament, it definitely states that the, the blood of goats and lambs and so forth could not ever take away sins, and I'm going to explain that to you here. So how much time do I have left? So I do have enough time. Yeah, 28 minutes. Okay. All right, so... Um, in verse 8, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and, uh, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small, and bring it within the veil. He shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. He shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with the finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and he shall, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. And that's interesting that he sprinkle the blood eastward, not westward, on the mercy seat. That is very interesting. I think in a future program, I think I'll explain to you a possibility of why that was the case. But you know eastward, looking in the front, is on the right side. Okay? But you know that Yeshua sits on the, what? On the right hand of God. And for someone to sit on the right hand that would be toward the left, right? So that would be toward the left. And here the priest, the high priest, is sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat eastward, not westward, not eastward. And that's very important to understand there. Verse 15. So everything was sprinkled on the right side of the mercy seat. Verse 15. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle upon the mercy seat. And remember, it was sprinkled eastward and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And, and this is all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement of covering for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. He shall go out into the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar around. And he shall sprinkle the blood upon it with his fingers seven times. Interesting that it's sprinkled seven times. Uh, remember, we do have seven churches. Uh, seven all kinds of things that represent you have seven trumpets, uh, you have seven last place. So it's very interesting that seven is used uh, throughout the Bible to symbolize uh, completeness. Um, verse 19, And he shall sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hollow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Remember the children of Israel is not just the Jews, is is those that that are living in the United States. 
Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, the countries in Northwestern Europe. I don't know if I mentioned Canada. So, and then, of course, Great Britain. So, and then anyone, of course, that accepts Yeshua as a Messiah are part of the children of Israel. So it, it, it represents all that. And, of course, those, as I just stated, that repent and come under um, the salvation of Messiah. Verse 20, And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live ghost. So remember, the holy place was cleansed, the tabernacle of the congregation was cleansed, and the altar, everything had to be cleansed. Verse 20, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of the fit man into the wilderness. Now, I used to think that the scapegoat was representing the devil, but that's a case of eisegesis. What the scapegoat represents is Christ. Christ took upon all the sins of all of mankind, as I quoted you from the scriptures. Uh, he take away the sins of the world. So that's what this goat represents. And then the other goat represents, of course, him sacrificing. So the two goats represents his, his uh, dual work in reference to uh, what this day represents, the Day of Atonement. So anyway... Uh, verse 23, And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall lead them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. All right, so I, I just wanted to, to point that out. And then verse 29 says, And this shall be a statue forever among you that in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month you shall afflict your souls, which afflicting your souls means not having food or water, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourn among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement. And notice that it says whether it be one of your own country or a stranger. That, so he expects everyone to eventually obey his law, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 34, on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, and that priest represents Yeshua Messiah, as I'm going to prove to you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So that's the purpose of this, so that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It represents being clean in the physical and then ultimately spiritually being cleansed. First, it shall be a Shabbat of rest unto you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statue forever. Okay, so... Let's understand what this day really means here in terms of how the New Testament breaks it down and defines it here. Okay, and uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For the law having a shadow of, of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offer year by year continue to make the commerce thereof into perfect. What is perfect? Being perfect is not sinning. Okay, so right in here, this one verse is telling you that all those sacrifices and offerings was not able to do that, to make us perfect. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that, the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. And that's what God is more concerned with, your mind, how you're thinking. He wants to cleanse your mind from bad thoughts. And the, and the blood of, of goats and bulls did not do that. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And this explains the reason why the sacrifices and offerings will be reinstituted in the millennium, which is proved by Ezekiel chapter 40 and 48, eight full chapters explains how the sacrifices will be reinstituted when Christ comes back. Because in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Okay? So that the people, we as human beings, need to be reminded of what our sins uh, does. You know, and, and to, to take a poor sheep and sacrifice and if, I mean, I, even me just thinking about that, it, it, it will definitely bring me into saying, shoot, I shouldn't sin anymore. I mean, look, look at this little lamb, defenseless lamb, uh, has to be killed because of my stupid sin. You know, and that's what's going to happen during the millennium. People are going to be compelled not to sin when they, when they, and then, of course, the lamb pictures the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And 
that's going to also cause people, hey, you know, because of, of sin, Yeshua had to come and, and sacrifice his life for us. So anyway, verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And then verse 5, where when he cometh into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. And burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will. So these are all scriptures that are quoted from the Old Testament, in particular Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8, which is a prophecy of the Messiah. Verse 8, Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering is an offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure in, wherefore are offered by the law. All right, so, and then Hebrews chapter 9, let's turn here. This is a critical passage of Scripture here to understand this. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verses uh, 10, um, actually verse 9, which, wait a minute, verse 9, the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying that the way into the holies of holy. Let's go. Verse seven. Actually, let's start in Hebrews nine, verse uh, six. Now, when these things were thus ordained, a priest went always into the first tabernacle, which is the um, the holy the holy place, accomplishing the service of God. So that's what he did—the service of God in the holy place. But into the second, which is the holy of holies, went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people or the sins of the people, the Holy Spirit this signifying. So this signified the Holy Spirit, the work of the, uh, the high priest, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle, which is the holy place, was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. As pertaining to the conscience, again, God is concerned about how you think. He wants to get that filth out of your mind. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So that's what this did. It, it only stood in meats and offerings, various washings and carnal ordinances. It did not take away, ultimately, the conscience of sin. Okay, Verse 11, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things, to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, All right, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And that's what he entered... Uh, the most holy place, that should be translated there, the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, because the priest can go to the holy place, but they can't go, only the high priest of the priest, the highest priest of the, of the priest, can go inside the holy of holies only once a year. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more should the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So this explains to you why he did what he did, not just to cover our sins and take them away, but to also to, to encourage us to do something, not dead works, but alive works, okay? And let's turn to also in this same book, Hebrews 13, to explain additionally what the sacrifices were for, not just to take away sins, but also to compel us to do good works. Hebrews 13, Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 15, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, continue, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, verse 16, but to do good and to communicate, which means in the original Greek that this was written in, it means uh, to to share, but to do good and to share, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So the sacrifices, what? Well, let me explain to you in a simple way what the sacrifices represented in terms of service. When you sacrifice, you sacrifice a lamb or a goat or 
a bull, whatever uh, you can afford, basically, uh, God accepted as long as it went according to the Torah, what you're supposed to sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice because giving, you know, <laughs> giving a lamb away to get burnt up or to, to, be, to be sacrificed was, was, um, was a sacrifice. But what God wanted to instill among the children of Israel and even uh, in spirit today is that we must learn how to share. And the sacrificing had a lot to do with that because they had what is called peace offerings. And when, when you sacrifice, uh, gave uh, an animal to be sacrificed for a peace offering, the priest shared in that and also some, some of the other people shared in that meal. So really, <laughs> in a nutshell, you can, you can look at the sacrifices of being a barbecue institution, basically. Uh, people were continuously fed meats, nutritional meats, and well-cooked meats on a daily basis because people, of course, were sinning every day. And, and um, some, you know, the peace offering was just an offering just to, just to, to have the willingness to want to give. And you had uh, Thanksgiving offerings, and you have all kinds of offerings. And God wants us to be willing to want to give. And, and one of the major reasons why Christ sacrificed himself, not only to take away our sins, but also to influence us to do alive works, not dead works. Because that is the total opposite of dead works, is alive work. He says, purge your conscience from dead works. Logically, he doesn't want to purge your conscience from alive works, right? So he wants to purge you from dead works, which will bring death sinful works, because that's what dead works are, to serve the living God. And how do you serve God? Matthew chapter 25 tells you uh, the, the, the prophecy or parable about uh, visiting uh, me in prison, taking me in, feeding me, clothing me. And when you do those things to other human beings, you're doing that to God. You're serving the living God, and that's what he wants to purge us from. The, the, uh, the bad habit that most of us have thinking about anyway of not helping anyone but ourselves we have to purge ourselves from that and that's what the sacrifice of christ in addition to taking away our past sins from us sins that we knew about from us uh that's what that should purge away too the, that stinginess that attitude of not wanting to give and share our possessions with mankind and with god so that's what the day of atonement also pictures so there are some other scriptures that uh, I'm going to quote here. See, I'm trying to break this down. I can go many different ways with this, but th this is such a, a very vital topic of discussion that in 60 minutes there's no way I'm going to be able to get everything in. But the, the purpose of these Bible studies is to help you to understand the basics of uh, God's holy days. And you know, maybe in, in future broadcasts I'll go into detail and specifics about each one. But right now, I just want you to understand in, in, this, in a simplistic way what these days represent. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 16. Uh, actually, no, let me, because I can't quote all this. Right here, this, this is a prophecy of the future. In Ezekiel 36, verse 24, For I will take you from among the heathen and, and gather you out of the countries, talking about all the children of Israel, and will bring into your own land. Then while I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. This represents what the Day of Atonement represents. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you or influence you to, to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it and will lay no famine upon you. Okay, so this is all good news here. This is in Ezekiel 36, if you care to read the rest of that. And in Ezekiel 37, verse 15, it's a continuation of this. It says, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Moreover, the Son of Man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, and take another stick and write upon it for Joseph and the stick of Ephraim from all the house of his companions. The Judah represents the Jews, Ephraim represents Christians, or, or those, and also those who habitate geographically in the United States, Canada, uh, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, Australia, the countries in Northwestern Europe, including Great Britain, and of course those who attach themselves to Yeshua 
for Jesus and state that they believe him. So that is all Joseph and the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, those who join themselves to them. Verse 17, And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Will thou not show us what thou meanest by these? says unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows. Joseph, by the way, is specifically referring to the United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, and will put them with him, even the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. So the Jews and the Christians will come together, ladies and gentlemen. One day they will come together and they will be one complete children of Israel. Verse 20, And the sticks wherein thou writest shall be in thy hand before thy, their eyes. Verse 21, and, they, and say unto them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will bring, gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, like American idol, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk on my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, which is Palestine, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forevermore. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, or agreement of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary, or his temple, in the midst of them forever. My temple, or tabernacle, also shall be with them, Yes, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, or set apart Israel apart, when my temple shall be in the midst of them forever and ever and ever. So again, that temple it really plays a key role in all this, ladies and gentlemen, as I've been preaching every, every time in this program. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31 to 34. And this is going to be the fulfillment of the new agreement to keep the law, not to do away with the law, but to keep it. Behold, the days come, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, said the Lord, that I will make a new agreement with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the agreement that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my agreement or covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord. But this shall be the agreement or covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts or in their minds and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. <laughs> this definitely hasn't happened yet, ladies and gentlemen. It hasn't happened collectively anyway. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and this definitely hasn't happened, and I will remember their sin no more. That has not happened collectively. Verse 35, thus says the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light. Okay. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out, that this is what the Day of Atonement represents as well. It represents um, atonement for all of mankind, not just the, the, the Israelites. You know, it begins with them, but anyone that wants to, to join with them will also receive um, pardon for their sins. Zechariah chapter 12. Well, actually, I just wanted to read. You can read Zechariah 12 and 13 for yourself, but Zechariah 12 tells you that he's going to uh, cause the Jews to recognize the Messiah. And then uh, Zechariah 14, verse 1, says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women raped, and half the city shall go forth, just half. The city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So this all, is again, pictures the, the day of atonement in Yom Kippur. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. 
So anyway, his feet is going to land on the Mount of Olives, and then it talks about the plague that will occur for those who try to oppose him. And in Revelation chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11, so Yom Kippur pictures the actual physical return of Christ on the earth, ladies and gentlemen. Revelation chapter 11, the seventh trumpet pictures the, the resurrection. And as I've, I've explained, uh, those people will be taken up to God's throne room, but they're going to come back and land on the Mount of Olives with Yeshua, and that is around the time of uh, Yom Kippur. But anyway, uh, Revelation 11, verse 15 and uh, it says, And the seven angels sounded, and there was great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God. It was Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four others which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces, and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord, which art, was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and his reign. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward unto thy service the prophets and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, should destroy them which destroyed the earth. So Yeshua is going to destroy them that which destroys the earth. And this is interesting. And the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in this temple the Ark of His t Testament. And so the Ark of the Covenant, the, the real Ark of the Covenant, is in heaven, ladies and gentlemen. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and a great hell. When I mean by real, the one that God has for Himself. Uh, there, there's... Um, Two, that you have the Ark of the Covenant in heaven, and then you have a physical representation of that on the earth. All right, and Ezekiel, actually Revelation chapter 19, also pictures uh, Yom Kippur, uh, him coming back. And verse 11 says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written on him that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. There we go again with uh, the blood representation of Yom Kippur again. And uh, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed upon him, white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and thread of the winepress of fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his name... His vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come together yourselves together unto the great supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which had deceived them. That, and this is, happens after the seven vials thrown out, by the way, of the seven plagues. So, in verse 21, it says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. In verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then immediately after this, in verse 1, one of the greatest days ever in the history of the world occurs in the universe. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key at the bottom of his pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid on to that dragon, that old serpent which is devil and Satan, and bound him up a thousand years and cast him into the bottom of his pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations or trick the nations no more to the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loose a little season. Okay, so at this particular period of time, the judgment will be set, and Yeshua and his brothers will be ruling the earth. And then verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon him, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received a mark upon their foreheads, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And that will lead us to our next discussion, which is the Festival of Tabernacles of Sukkot. May God bless and keep you, and I'll speak to you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. 
and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 